This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went try to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey everybody, this is Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow podcast. Please leave an iTunes review and go to simplepassivecashflow.com and click on the deal pipeline club link to get signed up for all the deals that I come across. And I will send out emails when I come across something that looks good. Today on the line, I have Seth Beacon. How's it going, Seth? Hey, good, Lane. How are you? Pretty good today. I um, you know, I got I woke up early, did the Equity uh, Pipeline Club newsletter, and they analyzed some properties, worked out, went to the float, had a ten more things to do today, and gonna get a massage later. But you know, the difference between you and me is that I have to go back to work Monday, and you don't. Well, you get the massage though, so <laughs> it's a pretty good trade-off. <laughs> Seth is a full-time real estate investor and was able to get out of the rat race when he was 31 years old. He continually invests in four states and acquired a portfolio of 50 houses and 80 apartments with his investors. Seth has interviewed twice on the Real Estate Guys radio show and recently co-founded a real estate crowdfunding company. He enjoys helping other investors avoid making the same mistakes he did when he first got started. Seth, anything you want to add to that? Well, it's, uh, I'd like to say that it was, uh, uh, simple and passive. Um, kind of like when we talked about offline, your, one of your previous, uh, guests had mentioned that the, his experience was anything but simple or passive. And my experience was very similar. So it, it was very active and, uh, and complicated, but I, I think there is definitely a formula to it. So I hope to be able to share that with your listeners. Yeah. I know one guy sent me an email saying, Hey, the simple passive cash flow podcast has turned into the very active investor podcast, but we're trying to get to the passive side. I think that's, that's the whole way we're going with this. Right. So Seth, how much simple passive cash flow are you making today and how are you doing it? So currently it's, uh, it's in the six figure range and most of what we do is long-term buy and hold investing. We did do a couple flips recently, but um, I think especially with the new acquisitions in the pipeline, it'll be able to be more uh, provide more cash flow for the investors and for myself. So the goal is to make it 100% uh, of the passive. Me and you met last year, and you've kind of been a, I don't know if you realize it, but sort of an informal mentor to me. I've been kind of following your footsteps in trying to quit my day job and go full-time real estate investing. And uh, you were also an engineer, right? Yeah, electrical engineer, actually. And you and I sat down one day when we in California, and I remember you told me that when you finally quit your day job, you had so much more free time and everything just progressed way, way faster. I always remember that. It's something that you know just made total sense to me. Yeah, it uh, and I think a, a lot of times we get focused more on the numbers than than the the lifestyle and the uh, just that those extra hours that we have in the day, which which is equally important. So, Seb, what is your Han Solo moment? And for people that who don't know what that is, Han Solo and his buddy Chewbacca from Star Wars were cruising the galaxy as low smugglers, but then crossed paths with Luke and Leia, and their lives took a pivot point. So, Seb, what's your uh, your resistance that you came across, and what was the catalyst for the change to finally burn the boats and uh, follow the path? that you are walking today and it looks like you never looked back from the day job, right? Yeah, uh, I love that question, Lane. Well, uh, I, unfortunately, I didn't have a Chewbacca by my side, so I, I didn't have a, a partner or a sidekick to kind of help, you know, fight off the Empire and, uh, and all those battles. Um, I, actually, I felt like I was working for the Empire uh, with, with the day jobs at the time. So just a little background, I, I, I live in Orange County, 
graduated with my undergrad back in 2008, got a job immediately afterwards. And I, I thought once I'd have that job, I'd have a lot more time to go travel, go go paintballing, um, you know, do do a lot of things I had on my goal sheet. But it ended up when I realized that this is how much time I would be trading for the next 12 months or years and years for this paycheck. Um, I, I literally had to cross off goals off of my, my list, which, which is the opposite of what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to add on to it and establish the game plan. I, I just didn't feel like I had control. So um, it, was, it was ironic because um, I saw the movie Office Space uh, back when I was in high school, and I thought I, – I, I didn't think real companies like that existed. But even the company I was in, they had literally had TPS reports, and, uh, and I think they – they thought that they were making fun of uh, the movie or just, you know, trying to try be playful with it. But everything about it was just like the movie. I mean, you just have the kind of that draconian boss breathing down your neck and not really caring if you're you're happy over there or you feel like you're making a difference. You know, you, you get ridiculed if you ask a question or if you try to help out another employee if, if they're running to some issues. I just felt it was very competitive. Um, it wasn't like like what I'd imagined, like working uh, at Tesla or Apple or, or Google. Um, so I, I, it was just pretty stressful. And this is back in 2008. So at the time, um, as a new college graduate, I didn't really have a lot of options. And um, then when the recession hit, um, you know, I got laid off. I was actually laid off twice from the jobs. And it was, you know, I just had to uh, keep keep looking for new jobs every time. And I was basically at the mercy of the employer. You know, this is how much we're going to pay you for your time. And it was never really a 40 hour work week because you, especially if you go on salary, um, you, you know, yeah, you got to get the job done. So it could turn into 50 hour weeks. I mean, there was, I would come in on the weekends to make sure that, um, projects would be finished. Um, and, uh, then it's, you, you kind of get that to that ceiling. And I, I remember asking each of my bosses, what else can I do to, to grow within the company? And, I, I felt like kind of school was the only other way. So I went back for my master's. And what, and what year did you graduate your undergrad? That was in uh, 2008. So I'd switched majors a couple times, but then I, I continued my master's uh, about a year and a half afterwards. Yeah, that's interesting because I graduated in 2007. So by the time the recession hit, really in 2009, was when all the, the tough times came. I was sort of established, but it seems like you're right on that new chopping block when you came out at 2008. Right. Maybe, Especially that. maybe that was the best thing because I oh, was working for a very stable company and I was, I had the most stable job that I could get. Whereas you got, you were on the chopping block and in hindsight, <laughs> that was the best thing, huh? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, kind of uh, looking back, I'm, I was kind of glad that it happened. The first, the first company was related to kind of defense industry and military industry, and, and when it, it changed from uh, Bush to Obama, there was it wasn't as uh, as lucrative to be in that business um, anymore. I mean, they were just it was a different different captain on the ship. And then afterwards, the next job was related to the housing industry, and um, it was a great time to be buying investment properties. I I thought that you'd have to have a lot of money, you'd have to have a million dollars to go buy real estate. So I, I got stuck into the stock market. I was just saving whatever I could from that company. And my, my coworker told me he had a rich uncle that that uh, had made a lot of money in stocks. And he said, Seth, you got to invest in this company called Washington Mutual. And um, I, I put all my savings I had at the time in that. And I got burned so bad that I was like, all right, enough of that. I'll just I'll just save up for down payment for, um, for a rental property. 
So I, I didn't really, uh, I didn't know how that would be. I just thought in order to get that rental property, I have to go to another bank that was still in business. Um, and I, I went up to another uh, major bank and, and they asked me how long I've been working for. They want me to show them my W2, the, the pay stubs and all that. And what they qualified me for was basically enough to get like a bedroom, a one bedroom, uh, apartment in in Orange County, which, you know, where I live. So nothing would cash flow, and it would, it would take a, a significant down payment. That's, so I was a little discouraged and, you know, went back to school for the master's. I mean, you had an engineering job, which is a pretty decent job. What were you netting at the end of, you made, you made the money and then at your day job, and then you paid all these expenses, your rent, your car. Something I, I talk a lot about with people that call in from the podcast and we talk about strategies. Right. Well, at the time, um, I, I, one of the goals was to be able to move out. So I, I moved back in with my parents to save money to be able to afford a, a house that I can buy and then have some, uh, some roommates. I didn't have the car payment and I just, I saved, I, I tried to max out my 401k, just, you know, take any deductions that I could, which as you know, as you know, as if we're just an employee and we don't have rentals, then we're pretty limited in terms of, um, what we can do to mitigate our, our taxes. So, I was just, you know, being frugal for a while. And, um, for about a year and a half, uh, after that I, I was saving and, um, I was just pretty stressed out. I, I was going to work. I was, was working about 40, 45 hours a week, uh, spending about an hour a day in traffic. So an hour, hour and a half, I should say. And then going for uh, school for the masters, I didn't get a chance to, uh, I, I felt like I didn't get a chance to have any fun, have a social life even on the weekends. It was just work, school, work, school, work, school. And um, I remember seeing my cousin uh, about halfway through the masters at a, uh, at a at a family get together, and she asked me, you know, what, what is your goal? She she was a dentist actually, and I says, well, ultimately, I I want to get this masters so I can have a little bit more money and contribute more to the company. Um, but down the road, I'd like to start my own company. Uh, I just don't know how. I don't know if I need to get an MBA. I need to, if I need to go study business. And she uh, she asked me if I read or, uh, ever heard of uh, Robert Kiyosaki or read any of his books, but I said I hadn't. And she recommended, um, instead of starting with Rich Dad, Poor Dad, she recommended I start with his uh, his new book at the time. It was called Conspiracy of the Rich. And the one thing that she she left me with, that it, it kind of felt like that moment from The Matrix where, where uh, Neo has a choice between the red pill and the blue pill, is she said, did you know that the Federal Reserve is neither federal nor reserve? And I was like, you're, you're kidding me, right? That's, that doesn't make any sense. Like I'm, I'm working for these dollars and every single dollar that I'm working for, it says Federal Reserve note. And she's like, go research it and then read the book um, once you find the answer. And, and um, I, I just pondered for a second. I was like, how, how is that even possible? How is it that the Federal Reserve, this, this you know, government agency, which, or at least I thought it was, it was a government agency, how can it be not even, you know, it's not a bank, it's not a, it doesn't have any reserves and it's not even federal. So um, I read the book and it, it uh, answered that question and, and it got me asking a lot more questions. And Conspiracy of the Rich, that Kiyosaki book, it's not really a real estate book, but I, it, it does relate real estate to uh, as a solution to the problem. The problem is inflation, right? Um, the uh, Robert Kiyosaki believes uh, that the Federal Reserve is, is a big part of uh, what led to the financial crisis. I mean, there was sloppy investing in Wall Street too, but there was a lot of easy money at the time. And, um, and the book just kind of showed the history of, of the people that got hurt, hurt the most during the recession were the ones who were investing for speculation. They were investing for capital gains. They weren't investing for cash flow. Uh, and the ones who did invest for cash flow, they could weather that storm much better. 
So it was it was a big paradigm shift for me is because I I, I kind of got spooked too. It was like this inflation is happening, and if the value of the money that I'm earning goes down every single year, and if I'm not getting raises because my bosses keep saying the economy is bad, we're in the middle of a recession, sales aren't there, then I'm actually losing money. Even if the wages stay flat, I'm, I'm losing money basically. It's just there's there's more and more money. You know, QE at the time was QE one, QE two, QE three. So um, I just I got that that burning desire. You know, that was the catalyst. Back to your earlier question to to get into real estate and just to from there, you know, read read Ken McElroy's book, ABC's The Real Estate Investing. Um, got into the podcast, The Real Estate Guys. You know, I've, I've listened to all of your podcasts as well too, and I'm. And I'm uh, <laughs> always reading books and going to the seminars and um, kind of from there, just led on to the, the real estate investing journey. Yeah. I guess going, kind of going back to what you're saying about inflation, I, the way I see it is it's kind of an insidious way of robbing people's savings. I mean, you buy a house for, I mean, what we're doing is we're, you know, we're buying a house for a hundred grand, but that house will probably be about 300 grand by the time 20, 30 years from now. And we're paying it back. We're still paying right. back that original $100,000 note. And it's just the normal people exactly. just don't down. realize that the government's robbing them every year with inflation and they're manipulating the inflation numbers. That That's true. And and it happens so slowly too, right? It, it's not like it. Um, and, and that's when I remember when I first learned about that, I was, I got so excited. I told my friends um, and I thought I was crazy. I was like, okay, yeah, inflation um, it, it's a little bit, but you know, they, they would reference like the CPI, um, and, and just talk about how, well, CPI is only like 1% or 2% of the time. Um, but it doesn't include food. It doesn't include, you know, the necessities, um, that, that are actually affected the most by, um, by, by the inflation basically, you know, accounts, iPads and iPhones and all that, but those, those naturally go down in value. And, and the neat thing you, you were talking about um, 30 years ahead, it's interesting too to see the value of real estate 30 years before, just even the cost of construction, the all the commodities that go into construction of any type of real estate, those commodities go up in value over time. Like the wood is not getting any cheaper, the copper is not getting cheaper, the, the tar that goes to make the oil, the tar, the oil that goes to make the roof, um, and the, the labor that takes to uh, apply that. Uh, it's it's kind of like we're buying these these raw commodities and and uh, hedging ourselves up so that as there's more money being printed we're um, we're being able to basically ride the tide. All right, and, and if you and I were politicians and making laws, I mean, it's a great idea, right? I mean, just people don't realize that they're they're taking they're taking their money with inflation. I mean, like out here in Seattle, I'm, I think you got a lot in California. There's toll roads, right? And people right. go crazy over that stuff. And I just think to myself, like, why don't they just like not do any toll roads so people don't get upset about, you know, $5 here and there, but just get them on the inflation because they, people don't even know. What happened yeah. To money. <laughs> right. And, and you add on to it too. I mean, just, you know, the politicians, uh, you know, not that, not to get too political, but, um, you know, our, our national debt, it's $20 trillion, right? So that, that's a fact and it's growing. Um, so it's, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's you, me and everyone else that's going to have to end up uh, paying for it one way or another. And it's not likely that the government's going to reduce that. They're probably just going to keep doing what they did and just devalue the currency and make it so that 20 trillion feels like 20 billion, uh, you know, just more and more paper money or fiat currency floating around. I think so, politically you and I are just too busy to even have an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> probably right. <laughs> So you started with these single family homes and then you, you uh, 
let's just step take a step back. How much did you save for that first one? Well, um, well, that was interesting. Um, so I, I actually didn't start with single family. Um, after I read that book, I, I probably had about eighty to a hundred thousand saved, and uh, then I read the Ken McElroy book, ABCs of Real Estate Investing, um, Real Book of Real Estate, Multifamily Millions, and all that. So I got the real estate bug, but it was more more lined towards apartment buildings, and and back then. Um, I, I I wasn't aware of like seller financing or you know the creative uh, strategies, so um, I I got into uh, you know I was still listening to the podcast every day during the commute and there was one particular podcast uh, it was a turnkey provider uh, who uh, who kind of opened my mind up to going out of state and and going basically where the numbers make sense and where there's that that population of job growth. The problem was I think I, I overtrusted them. I, I didn't know what the difference was between a good turnkey deal and a bad turnkey deal. I, I just, you know, they, they provide the performa and unfortunately I believed it. So the performa said that um, these two properties that I, would, I was about to purchase would cash flow, I think it was something like $8,000 a year. And I got really excited and I was planning on reinvesting that cash flow. So the, the two properties ended up being uh, two fourplexes, and the market was in Phoenix, Arizona. This is back in December 2010, and it was kind of to my surprise. After we closed, uh, it took about two, just over two years, to get those two buildings to cash flow because it was eviction after eviction, um, vacancies. Your tenants would move in, they move right up, back out after two months, um, and you know they wouldn't leave the property nice and pristine. They would bash the windows. They they would knock holes in the walls. Um, I don't I didn't even know it was possible refrigerators could get that dirty, but it looked, you know, a white refrigerator would turn black just with all the mold and all that. So it, it was kind of pretty nasty and and, and stressful because um, I, I basically put all my money uh, into the down payment for those two properties, and I was dealing with all the property management headaches along the way as well. And and that's what I call the these turnkey providers, a lot of them will see the California investors or Seattle investors and we're not there. So we really put a lot of faith in them. And that's why I started helping people buying turnkey rentals because I got sick and tired of people not really knowing what they're doing and not using a broker to. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point because um, the turnkey providers and the flippers, um, they're, they're not all bad, but uh, their, their financial incentive is to, I mean, they make money on the purchase, right? They have no incentive to make sure that the property cash flows. They have no incentive to make sure that there's a good management team in place. They can say they do, but they don't make any money off of that, right? So they give attention to, you know, the spoon that feeds them. And I think that's that's the big difference between, you know, that, that route and going with a broker. Uh, and the next level is with the syndicator, right? Like the syndicators, uh, they get paid only when the property cash flows, if, if there's like a preferred return or on the back end. So they have a vested interest to make sure that that deal performs and so that the investor is not just left with a you know hot potato. I, I, I didn't know, uh, you know, at the time it was just, I, I kept the wrong management companies in place too long. And I, I notified the turnkey provider and, and they they'd messaged the property manager at the time that came with the property. It was just, you know, kind of lip service. So I went through another company and then another one and then finally started getting stabilized. But um, even while I was negative cash flowing, I, I kept I kept buying properties. I, I realized that there was uh, there had to be a solution to it. I, I was doing something wrong, but it wasn't the property's fault. Like this, this, these buildings have been around since like the 1960s. I'm sure that they had been cash flowing from before. And once I could solve that problem, that I, I would basically get the uh, the reward. So add value first and then get paid after. 
So how many did you acquire and how much passive cash flow were you up to before making the jump? So from there, those two, um, I, I did another fourplex and then, um, the, uh, then I ran out of money. Uh, the, the third fourplex, I just bought it with a credit card and, and that one ended up having a meth lab. Uh, it was a meth lab. There was a sex offender living in the property and, and then the property manager, when they found out it was a sex offender, um, they, they asked if I wanted to manage it. It's like, well, why am I paying you guys? I mean, and you know, what, what am I going to do take a phone call and, um, and, and deal with all those hassles with that and all the issues you can provide the other tenants. Um, so, but you know, one by one, it would, it would get them stabilized. And then, um, did a sixplex that was, uh, as a syndication and then went on to do a 52 unit apartment complex. So after the 52 unit, that's, that's when I got out of the rat race. Um, and, and that deal took about, it was about two years. Actually, no, that was about one year after I bought it. I was able to, to get out of the rat race and, and we were about halfway through the repositioning on that one. So that was uh, December, 2014, um, when, when I fired the boss. And I think you mentioned to me that you, you really didn't have that much passive cash flow at that time. You, you kind of just took the leap, right? Like you were at what, 3000 or something like that? Yeah, it was, it was pretty low. And, and that was, that, that barely covered the, uh, the expenses at the time, kind of like the cash flow one-on-one game, which it's great. If any of the listeners um, haven't played, if you get a chance to play with lane too, it's, it's, it's awesome. Um, it, it, when the game, you, you have to have passive income greater than your monthly expenses. And, um, even though I was close, I knew that if I didn't have to deal with the, just the stress of the job, the, the commute and 50 hours going, working for that company, if I could just put that into doing three more deals or, or two more deals, and they don't have to be big deals, but just small deals to get a little bit higher that it would be worth it. Um, and it ended up being the case, like, uh, about two months after I, I, I got out of the rat race, um, bought another four properties, six months later, uh, bought another eight houses, then another house and just it was kind of like that compound effect. It, it, it you know, if, if looking back, I, I wish I would have gone out sooner. If, if I had the reserves, I would have been okay with that negative cash at the beginning. But that's, that's, this is a little bit more of a riskier strategy. It, it just, it comes down to, you know, personal preference. And that was all with syndication money or you know, not syndications via SEC, but just private money lending. Exactly. So how did you share yeah, lot- those, those deals? Cause you were the experience, you had the deal flow and then people were just, I mean, people think that they have money and money is pretty easy to find when, when you give them pretty good return. How'd you structure yeah. it initially? Yeah. Well, at, at the beginning, I was, I was really embarrassed of, uh, of, of the problems that I had on the properties and, and the ongoing problems too, the, the meth labs, the, the drive-by shootings. I mean, I, I didn't realize that a lot of these properties were, were D or F neighborhoods until after I bought it. Because I mean, even like the difference between a C-class property and a D they can look very, very similar. The difference is if you have one bad apple tenant in that apartment complex. If you have one drug dealer on there, all the tenants near them are going to move out. Uh, they're going to tell the rest of the neighbors in the property. Then that drug dealer is going to attract the wrong client, uh, attract the wrong crowd and the wrong customers. So it can it can turn pretty quickly. Um, but it was it was a good lesson because you know that that helped us uh, as far as you know vetting out the property management companies, make sure they can hap- uh, prevent that from happening, what to do when that happens, how to vet the the tenants correctly, so we're not doing that constant turnover. And, and it was embarrassing, but I found that once and whenever any of the investors would ask, like, hey, how are your current properties doing? I would just tell them, a, they would get scared and shocked because they thought once you have real estate, it automatically cash flows. It automatically that there would be a line of tenants waiting to get in there, and they realize 
it's a lot more challenging than what the turnkey providers make it seem like. It, it is a business. Um, we are providing a product, that housing, but we have to market it. We have to make sure that the customer service is good. We have to make sure that there's a, a team in place and a system in place to be able to answer any of the after hours maintenance calls. And that this goes for any type of rental rental property class. But when, when they found out all the all the different moving pieces in there, and then that there was a system in place to be able to manage that, they they got excited and were, were more open to, to partnering up. So when we were talking about earlier about simple and passive, it, it wasn't simple and passive for me, but what I, I get enjoyment out of, and, and I can tell you do as well, is, is making it simple and passive for, for others because not everyone has the time to, to read the books, go to the seminars or, you know, have the conversations and, and make the mistakes. They, they'd rather just get the benefit and, and work with other people that are already doing it and have those systems in place. Would you be able to share pretty standard partnership ranges you know if you put if you bring in the deal and you put and you operate and manage the investment how much would the the investor be expecting to make or is it like a 50 50 split or what's the kind of method methodology there it it, it depends really on the investor i i've tried uh, uh i've underwritten a lot of multifamily deals along the way and initially when when i would come across like a deal that i want to syndicate it's like when, once you get that deal, if it's a 100-unit building or however 200-unit building, whatever it is, like the clock starts ticking. You put in your earnest money deposit and that money, it could be $10,000, it could be $100,000. It goes hard after 30 days or 45 days. And if it's in a really competitive market like like Dallas, you have other investors that they're able to put non-refundable earnest money. So that, that money is hard the instant the seller takes it. And that, that's really hard to compete with. Um, because we want to make a non-biased uh, decision, we want to make sure that we're we're not attached to the deal, that we're we're looking under every rock, and the team is uh, making sure that you know mechanical, electrical systems are good, you know, doing the lease audits. So I, I felt that when when I would start with the deal first and then try to raise capital for that deal, I'd, I'd feel like a like a, like a car salesman, like a used car salesman, because I didn't take the time to figure out what the investor was looking for. Um, I, I used to think that all all real estate investors wanted the same deals that I did, but even when I came across some really sweet seller finance deals uh, on multifamily with with big upside, um, as soon as the investors would see the 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 current status of that property or how it currently looked like, um, they would just get too you know it, it wouldn't it wouldn't meet their uh, their tolerance or their criteria. Like the 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 pain of of dealing with that outweighed the benefit. So I felt that if I start uh, first listening to the investors instead of trying to convince them and try, instead of trying to sell them anything, but just listening to them, find out what else have they done in the past? Um, what do they want real estate to do for them? Um, do they have a tax problem? Are they wanting to get more depreciation? Do they want cash flow? Uh, do they want more of equity upside? Is, is this retirement money? Is this money to uh, to pay off for their kids' education? Once, once I know that, it, it may or may not even be my deal that can solve the problem or, or may, maybe the best solution is for me to point them in the direction of someone else that has that that prescription, if you will, that can solve their particular pain. So structuring it that way, I mean, some of the investors like debt, we take it up to whatever the usury limit is uh, state by state. Other investors are looking to you know double their money in X number of years or um, offset those those tax issues. So it's, it's really case by case basis. Did this kind of dictate you going from apartment complexes to pools of single family homes or is it yeah. another thing going on? Yeah, I, I still have multifamily. It's uh, and, and it did because um, I, I felt I, even some of the investors I worked with um, that uh, they're really, really great, uh, easy to work with. 
but they would only want to be in a deal, say, for like 12 months. Like they cared only about short term. Like they just want to be liquid and they wanted to have that security of being able to foreclose on a property um, if worst case scenario happens. Uh, they weren't really interested in being in a deal longer term and other investors were. So uh, seeing what some other friends have, have done in, um, in Atlanta um, who, who started around the same time as me, uh, they were able to gather at race with like half as many units and it, it just felt like everything was happening exponentially faster with them because uh, they were focused on a different asset class. And it was, it was kind of a hard pill for me to swallow because I always felt like uh, you know, multifamily is always the best. And, and I, and I, I see most single family investors wanting to go into multifamily, but it, it has to be in alignment with their investor identity because, um, multifamily, there's a lot more efficiencies you have, you know, you can have the one or you can have the onsite maintenance, onsite management, economies of scale, but at the same time, kind of like what Ken McElroy shared uh, at one time over in the seminars, you could have a tornado go through there. And if you have 50 houses, that tornado might wipe out one or two houses. But if it gets in the path of, of one apartment complex, you can have it, the entire thing disintegrated or an ice storm. Um, I think it was like Jorge Newberry had mentioned before. When I got smart and sold my primary residence to start investing in investments that actually made sense, whoo! I need a place to diversify quickly as opposed to some money market or some high reward checking account. Let's face it, turnkey rentals are cool and some vacations are great, but they don't come around often. I stumbled upon the American Homeowner Preservation Fund. The owner, George Newmary, once apartment syndicator too, is now sponsoring the podcast. His fund cuts the middleman out to crowdfund the solution to the mortgage crisis in America. They are empowering you to fund the purchase of distressed mortgages and earn returns that smoke any other passive fund. If you find something else better out there, let me know. Oh yeah, they work with families to keep them in their home after buying the underwater note at a huge discount. It's an opportunity to make an impact on families and communities while earning returns. Start investing with as little as 100 bucks in investinhp.com. If you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. I, I look at it as it's just one prescription. Uh, what I like about the, the single family portfolios now is from what we're seeing and that there's a lot less competition. The cap rates aren't as compressed as multifamily. There's, there's actually financing available. There's no, there's no Fannie or Freddie limit, uh, but it's not for everyone. I, I can see why the institutions are, are still struggling to get in that particular space because single family rentals are still fragmented. But, you know, where the numbers make sense and where, where those deals can satisfy what the investors criteria are looking for, um, it, it ends up being a good match a lot of times. So how, how big are your normal pool sizes on these single family home lots? Um, we're looking at a deal right now over in Tampa. It's, uh, it's about 69 houses. There's another, it's about 65 houses in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and then we, we buy them in markets that we're already in. We can buy them one off, uh, onesie twosies or smaller packages from, from sellers that are just looking to retire. So it's, it's more about where the numbers make sense. And another thing that I really appreciate that, that you do, and, and this would be a good tip for the listeners when you're first getting a deal, just looking at the rent to value ratio. Um, I, I don't think that's just exclusive to single family. I think that could apply to multifamily or office or anything else. If you have that criteria that you're looking for, if you know you want a 1% rent to value ratio, then it becomes a lot easier, you know, to to pass or or take on deals that, that fit the criteria. So uh, some of these deals, I mean, we, we we go a little bit higher. I try to look for deals that are 1.5 percent to to 3 percent rent to value ratio, and and it does sound a little more challenging, but we manage them like apartment complexes. So 
We'll make sure we have the tenant retention systems in place, good management teams. And um, the main difference being that instead of one roof, we have multiple roofs. Yeah, I just want to point out for the listeners that it, you know, it sounds pretty amazing, but I, I know you're going after a little bit more C-class properties, $60,000 right. range. Where I think kind of the gold standard that a lot of the listeners go after are that B-minus class, $100,000 property that's right around that 1%. As sure. we all know, it's that rent-to-value ratio changes as you go through classes. Right. And it's definitely more, uh, more management intensive, uh, once it gets a little bit higher, but, and, and, you know, that's kind of taking the experience we learned from, from the multifamily side of it. You know, we, we see that with a lot of the sellers, unfortunately, where, where they buy, they buy at the wrong time or, or they don't, they don't budget in repairs, maintenance or CapEx. And, um, and they get, they get surprised when they have to replace the roof or they have to replace the water heater and all that. But we, we factor them into the underwriting and, uh, we're prepared for, for when it does happen. You know, one thing I notice on these single family homes that is you can't really quantify when you're doing your underwriting is I feel like when you when you pick up the property you get a lot of the systems fixed and your your cap X is pretty smooth sailing for the first year few years. But I feel like somewhere between year four and eight, it's gonna hit you hard. Very mm-hmm. hard. And I what's your what's your hold period on these portfolios? Normally uh we most of them is as long as the investors, um, if this is what the investors are looking for that, that I'm involved with on the deal, it's it's a longer term, uh, five to seven years. Uh, but the goal is to be able to refinance it within the first five years and and pull out as much equity as possible. What I did with the Phoenix properties, I, I refinanced and pulled out all the equity and the renovation budget, so I had literally had no principal into the deal and and still had it cash flowing. So. Um, it, it's not not a promise, but that that's basically an infinite return. Then, right? Um, you can do that on multifamily. You can do it on on other asset classes too. So just you know, buying at a discount, ideally buying below replacement cost, and uh, being able to force equity in there through the uh, renovations. I think that's that's a good strategy to go by. All right. Very nice to check in with you and seeing when that wave comes. If it's a big tidal wave, or it's just you underwrote it conservatively, I'm sure to account for it. But I'd be right. interesting. It's one, yeah. one thing I also see is, you know, I see a lot of these pools of portfolios, pools of homes where, you know, there's like a dozen properties here, 20 here. And, and a lot of them are just like crap, like, you know, just a bunch of lemons packed yeah. in a bag <laughs> at Trader Joe's or something like that. It's, <laughs> it sounds like when you go above what, like 40, 50 units that you seem to get a little bit better quality. Is that what you're noticing? Yeah. Um, and, and we say no to a lot more deals than we say yes to. Um, I mean, we, we, we're seeing... Uh, you know, the space is growing. And unfortunately, uh, because there's an appetite for uh, for some of the REITs and, and the hedge funds in the space, some of the, the local turnkey providers, they'll take properties that um, they, they won't even appraise for more than $30,000 and they'll be selling them for, for fifty dollars or $60,000. And they're trying to sell them the cash flow. And unfortunately, single family is not there yet. You can do that with multifamily, increasing the NOI and, and raising the value of the building. But Single family, it's still it's still associated with the comps. So we, we want to make sure that we're we're buying below the comps just in case if the market just stays flat, we have a good extra strategy in place. And so what's your thought on the uh, the hedge funds? I know they went in in the early, what was it, 2010 to 2013, and they bought a lot of these areas like Atlanta, and now they've been holding them for a few years. I mean, what's what's happening with those that inventory? Yeah, they uh uh, and I'm, I'm not a big fan of Wall Street, but they've they've actually done a I think a good job in paving the way for this uh, for the single family rental portfolio asset class. It's it's kind of a newer asset class. 
they created the financing. So they, they do a lot of the uh, the buying and the selling these big packages, but they've also created the, the, the companies that do the financing. Uh, B2R is one of them. I think they're, they're changing their name, Civic Financial and uh, Wedgwood and those uh, so on. It's it's still fragmented though. I think at one of the IMN conferences I was at, they they talked about how there's I think it was like 11 million rental properties nationwide. I, I could be getting that stat um, off a little bit, but it, uh, most of those 11 million uh, rental properties, vast majority of those, are owned by investors with one or two rental houses, or I think it's like one to five. So the REITs that come in and uh, yeah, they were buying up you know thousands and thousands of houses, but it's still a drop in the bathtub. It's it's and it's still way too fragmented for them to be able to encapsulate all of the the inventory on there. And a lot of times they don't um, like even the areas that we're in, at least in the current markets, they're not we're not in the areas that the, the hedge funds are really going for. They're looking for the B and the A class. Uh, they don't really invest for cash flow. Um, they're they're looking at more from a capital gains perspective. So we're we're more on like the you know blue collar working class you know, cash flow focus. And you know when we when we can value add through re- renovations, we do that as well. So the same class but just different segments of the market. All right, that's a that's a great visualization. You're right, but right below them, that's good. So we kind of talked a lot through your story. Went quite along here, but uh, I guess now you got a Chewbacca. <laughs> but what's your worst life business woman? What did you do after? Gosh, um, that was when a, uh, and I didn't even know this was possible. That was when a bank tried foreclosing on, um, on an apartment complex that I owned, even though I'd never missed the mortgage payment. The way that deal was, that was a deal where the seller was hurting. The property was losing money every month. It was a a larger complex in San Antonio, Texas, and we structured it with creative financing. So the bank knew that the property was in trouble, but the problem that we had was the seller was, uh, they were very high net worth. And the bank's position was, okay, we, we have an inexperienced seller with a high net worth that's a guarantor on the loan. And then we have Sep over here who has a lower net worth and he has experience so that we're trying to make it, trying to make it so we could assume the commercial loan and, and basically not have to put a down payment because the numbers wouldn't have made sense if we'd have to put the 25% down at the, the price they wanted with the renovations required. So we structured it so that we assumed the commercial loan, the first position loan, and then the seller uh, carried a second for the down payment, and I just paid the agent commissions on the side. So the the bank they knew that we were doing that. Um, I was transparent, but it was kind of like don't ask, don't tell. They said it's fine if it's on the lien, but don't send us an email about it or anything like that. So that was all fine. And then halfway through the repositioning, I mean that that property was extremely challenging. Uh, we, we've gone through four management companies on that one. That's the one that made it to nationwide news. And halfway through, it was actually after uh, uh, the the second shooting on the property. Uh, sorry, the third shooting. Uh, the bank says, uh, you know, we the representative from the bank that we're working with, uh, the commercial loan officer, said this bank is actually uh, being acquired by another bank because the bank is going under in essence. So the new bank bought the old bank, and they were auditing all their loans. And they were they were basically anything that was done with any type of creative financing or anything that they didn't like, they would use any language they could in the uh, in the loan documents to uh, to make it difficult. So we had a balloon on that seller financing that was coming up. Um, that was in May of that year, and then December we had to pay off that seller financing. We needed more time. It was just it was a lot more work. Uh, like most repositionings, uh, it, it takes longer than expected. It costs and it costs a lot more than expected. 
Um, seller was open to an extension, but the bank says, nope, we're, we're not going to allow it. So they were doing what they could to, to force us into a corner of having to, to foreclose. And I think they saw that San Antonio market was improving. The, the building was worth a lot more than <clears throat> than what we'd have bought it for. Um, but thankfully, I mean, just with, with um, constantly just, you know, educating myself and going to networking events, we, we found an investor that was interested in, um, in taking out that seller financing without putting a lien on the property. Did you get a lawyer um, involved and, and did he, did he just yeah, you were screwed? Uh, actually it was, a yeah, uh, 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 Mauricio Raul, a uh, securities attorney has been, he's been phenomenal. So he, he helped us navigate that and, and, and be able to make it so that we can solve that problem. We ended up refinancing it afterwards and, and the deal was, was awesome. It was great learning experience, but it was, it was not easy to go through because my, my time, my number one priority was, uh, ensuring that the tenant safety and and giving the the team on the ground all the resources they need to get the security cameras up, prevent the crime from furthering, and then it, the the bank was just you know making it extra more complicated. So um, the mistake, I mean, the lesson learned from that was to make sure that in writing um, that the bank does say something on there, like if there's any type of modification, anything creative with there, that they're okay with it, they sign off on it. Because unfortunately, I mean email and, and word of mouth. I mean, it's, it seems pretty obvious, right? If it can't happen, it will happen. Yeah. Get it in writing. Always. Right. Always. I always like at work, something we do at, at the day job is always follow up with an email saying per our discussion, this is a summary of what we talked about. You don't need a reply. You just send it. Right. Good. Really good habit. That's a great habit. The mark of a fire performer is to put your ego aside and accept the help of others and mastermind. And I know you do this. I mean, you go to that goals seminar and I see, you're always sitting in the front row. Me, on the other hand, I'm in the back so I can go to the bathroom or get coffee. <laughs> but what's a two-week experiment and a six-month project you're, you're working on to show people that you're working actively working on new things? The, uh, the two-week uh, experiments, gosh, uh, working on another acquisition, getting my own personal website up and running. The six-month is to have the crowdfunding platform launched. It's, it's myself, my, my partner, Ryan, and uh, our partners, Ryan and Jacob, you know, we're already, we're already syndicating. So um, I just feel like there's kind of a void in, in the crowdfunding market where it's, it's a lot of these, uh, a lot of, a lot of middlemen basically with, with little to no experiments in, in actual syndications or actually having, having deals go bad and having to solve those problems. So I figure that there's a way to help um, help other investors not make those same mistakes and be able to share their opportunity as well. All right. The good thing about crowdfunding is now everybody can do it. The bad thing is that now everybody can do it. And you get right. <laughs> low barrier to entry is not a good thing for the most part. Exactly. So any uh, secret habits to share? Uh, one recent one. Uh, I know you're a Tony Robbins fan, uh, like myself. So I, I was actually at the uh, Unleash the Power Within seminar in San Jose a couple months back. I mean, it was awesome. But uh, Tony, uh, he shared one particular habit that stuck with me. Even for all the listeners to do this, it's it's been really helpful because um, it's easy to become a deal junkie, especially if you're an active investor, just putting too much focus. One of the earlier podcasts you'd mentioned uh, something about, you know, it's not a good idea to just reinvest 100% of uh, your profit from your deals. You should spend it, right? And I, and I agree. I think that's a, that's a good philosophy to live by. So what Tony Robbins said is to take out a sheet of paper and, and draw in it a circle. And it's in that circle divided up into seven or eight spokes. So it's kind of like a wheel spoke. And in each section of the spoke, write down these seven items. You can, you can add more to it. One would be finances, then relationships, time, body, emotion, mission, and contribution. 
And then once you have those written in each segment, on a scale of one to five, you would shade in that particular pie of the of the spoke of where you feel you are in personally for that particular spoke of your life. So, you know, where, how do you feel about time management right now? Is it, is it on a one to five on, on mission, on, on relationships and all that? And at the end, you'll notice uh, ideally it's supposed to be a balance. But at least for me, when I first did it, it was it was not balanced. I, I, I wasn't happy with my time management. I wasn't going to the gym as often as I wanted to. Finance was doing great, but there was there was some changes needed. So um, th- that's been a big help just to make sure that, you know, we don't have any regrets later on in life. We're, we're able to spend time with family or, or the charities we're passionate about or whatever it is. So it's not just only about the next deal. Yeah, my vision board, I have this quote. I think I made it actually. <laughs> it says, uh, anybody can achieve any one thing but the truly successful can't have it all. And it comes down to balance. I mean, you see it all the time with these guys who go to the gym and they work out all the time, but you know, they're, they're broke. Or right. people who have all these, these friends and always have, you know, dinner dates and lunch dates, yet they, uh, yeah, they, you know, they have just no direction. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta have Too much all. focus. Yeah, you got to have the balance. And uh, yeah, that, that reminded me of your, uh, your story, you know, the famous Tony Robbins quote where uh, he says, Things happen to you, not for you, right? Right. I mean, you had a couple of bad, bad things that happened, and it definitely paved your way. Yeah, and and just taking it as a as a, a learning experience, um, I, I think school kind of gets us brainwashed into uh, I, I'd say school and and some of the the, the corporate cultures sometimes. Unfortunately, um, it gets thinking in terms of uh, mistakes are bad. You know, don't make mistakes, get it right the first time. But I mean, that that's where the lesson is, and. And I, I think even when we take time to, to, you know, reflect on those mistakes and what we could have done differently, it helps us get faster to the next level. So it's it's okay to the mistake. I mean, just uh, the faster we do it, the more often and and smaller mistakes. I mean, we don't we don't want to go bankrupt twenty times, but um, you know, just being able to to put those together um, and uh, and put that into the business into the system uh, so that those challenges aren't as stressful uh, anymore. I think it's it's uh, a good way to make it so it's stress a lot less stressful for the investing. Um, even a lot of the challenges that I had earlier on, like those challenges don't happen anymore. Like the same, the same deals, they would take a fraction amount of time to get them stabilized. It would take uh, less money and, and we wouldn't have all the turnover with the team because we, we have a process to be able to know what to look for and how to, how to keep everyone accountable. But, you know, we wouldn't have known it unless actually, you know, putting the, the rubber to the road and, and start learning. Right. Right. You know, my uh, the last time I went to UPW, the takeaway that I took was he said that the quality of your life is in direct proportion to the most uncertainty you can have. So, you know, always try and take that next risk or fail or make that mistake. That's a great quote. Love that. Well, what's your simple passive cash flow now? And imagine you had two times it. Describe your ideal day detailed routine and what projects you'd be working on? I guess the, the ultimate goal is to get it up to uh, $50,000 a month um, in simple passive cash flow. And then if I doubled that uh, to uh, uh, to 100K, uh, I, I travel more often. Gosh, daily routine. I, uh, I, I'd go to Lake Como, Italy for three months of the year and just work over there uh, with my fiance and have more time to, to coach uh, other new investors be able to improve more communities basically so just keep doing what i'm doing and just be able to change where i'm doing it from something that you recently thought about burning your cash on for a time savings or an improvement in quality of life 
Um, gosh, another good question. Um, I, I think that improvement in quality of life, I think that's that's directly proportional to to the value that we can add to others. So I, uh, if I could burn the cash on on, um, on hiring more employees, more virtual assistants, focus more on the the online marketing, and and maybe even build out a uh, an online financial education platform. And ultimate goal is to be able to help teach and create a thousand millionaires per year. Because um, again, I don't I don't think schools doing a good job with that. I don't think the four hundred one k industry is doing a good job or Wall Street. So just trying to help educate more. Um, more people who, who like me. I mean, I never, I never ex- thought I would be an entrepreneur. I, I didn't. Um, I, I'm not a. I, I, for most of my life, I wasn't a big risk taker. I'm extremely shy, um, and I, I always thought that this, you know, being a full time real estate investor is something that happens once you're like in your 60s or 70s. But it's it's definitely possible. Just once you get around the right people. Um, everything just it's just like that compound effect so i think i'd, I'd burn it more on, on expanding the business uh to to help improve the lives of other people yeah I, i'm trying to do that and want to go move back to hawaii and start some kind of real estate club but have it supplement like a non-profit that teaches people how to keep a freaking budget and you know, spend money and balance a checkbook and people they still do that anymore yeah that reminds me of that uh, old MBA saying, um, which I don't have an MBA, but um, you can't control what you don't measure, right? So just even even just balancing the checkbook. If more people, I think, got in the habit of just doing that that simple task, even just you know, what's what's one thing I can do to increase my income by fifty dollars a month? What's one thing I can do to reduce my expenses by fifty dollars a month? Slowly, you know, day by day, that that adds up. So instead of looking for the next five thousand dollar a month income um, or expense reduction, just little by little. I think you can get get us all closer to that goal. Yeah, it's always frustrated me how like you know they teach all these subjects in school, but nobody teaches like simple financial literacy. Right. <laughs> and I think I think there's a crossover point with people, you know, getting out of debt, managing a budget, paying off credit cards. But once they're up to a certain point, then they need to start doing into real estate. So I think that's kind of my big vision is to get people out of debt and then transition into, well, let's, let's do investing, but you can run the one in Southern California for me. Sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Tony Robbins identifies two large concepts that we're continually struggling to gain perfection at. The first is the art of fulfillment. And the second is the science of achievement. If you die tomorrow and this was your final words of wisdom, what is your first secret of, of a science of achievement? I think not necessarily having it be tied to money. Um, and, and more about the lifestyle, uh, the science achievement, I think it's goal writing. Uh, it's, it's the, the consistent habit of, of writing goals and, and sharing them with those who are supportive uh, of those goals and, and be able to keep e- each other accountable of those. And then just keep, even once you uh, accomplish those goals, raise the bar even further. So add it, add it again. And, and that, that's something I, I was reluctant to do even after I read, I think, Jim Rohn and, and Brian Tracy's books on goals. Because it's like, well, how could something so simple make such a big difference in our lives, right? But it's it's insanely powerful. And it's just it's it's when it happens too is I, I get I get shivers just or goosebumps, you know, just thinking about it. Um, what's possible, right? When, when we apply that focus and that energy and and say yes to the things that get us closer to that and no to the distractions, you know, it just it, it just almost manifests itself naturally. Yeah, it almost sounds oogity boogity, but I mean, Robert Helms said, "Don't analyze the roots, just." He just picks the fruit, right? If it works, it works. And all these other people are doing it. Right. I was like, you know, Sep's up there writing his goals down and he's achieving it. Shit, I'm going to do the same thing. 
So what we both went to the same goal seminar, and then they had us write down the first tier, second tier goals. How are you keeping yourself accountable? I mean, are you looking at it every day or a weekly basis? Or maybe you kind of get into some of your best practices that you keep up on. I, so I have, I've got a vision board, but I, I need to update it. But uh, that's that's the first thing I see in the morning. Reviewing the goals, uh, I'd like to do it every day. Uh, now I do it about once a week. So that's that's one of the habits I need to change. And, and I, yeah, I've actually I, so I've been to Robert's uh, Robert Holmes's goal seminar twice. The the most recent one was with you a couple weeks ago, and then the last time was about four years ago. And I think the the difference between uh, the two. At least for me, with with the goals and just you know keep myself accountable was uh, when when Robert asked he asked everyone to write down what is it that you hate most like what's what's the problem that in the world or in life or whatever it is what is it that you despise and it could be it could be cancer it could be you know a disease or it could be a particular job or whatever it is uh, something that something that we're we want to avoid and then what is it that we're passionate about he said and then write down what you're passionate about and is is there a way that we can merge those two together and one of the things i wrote down that i i was uh that i hated was i i hate seeing especially during this last political cycle i think a lot of people have uh, unfortunately given up on capitalism because they think that um, these these CEOs with these golden parachutes of these companies that they didn't start they just they came in and they got big bonus even if they didn't add any value uh, to the investors or to the the customers or to the employees. I think that's what people associate capitalism with. So th- that was one of the things that I wanted to uh, to be able to change was to help create more more capitalists, to help create more uh, more financially free Americans or, or across the world as well. And that one of the goals was the crowdfunding platform. So we had already been working on it, but I just got that extra fire to be able to to do that, to be able to help move more people into that financial education space and help give them more control of their life and their outcome. I mean, you mentioned it before that one of your goals is to to uh, coach other entrepreneurs and real estate investors. Right. I know mine's is what pisses me off is when I see these 35, 40 year old couples with a five year old, 10 year old. And they're both going to their day job and they're just never really getting by. And like, it's the stock market that's screwing them. And if they just had a little financial education on getting out of debt and investing, then one of them wouldn't have to work probably. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. It's, it's, uh, and, you know, inflation isn't making that any easier. The, the rising cost of living isn't helping with that either. I, I, I didn't see this. It was, it was way before my time, but um, I've, I've heard like, you know, 1950s and 1960s, it was common to see single working it was it was a you'd have two parents but only one of them would have to be working and the other parent either the husband or the wife could could take care of the kids now it's it's so rare to even see that right i mean just one person working with the current wages barely enough to even get by right so anything else that you want to leave on the art of fulfillment i think you might have touched that already yeah, I think just, you know, keep being consistent with the goals, you know, keep keep listening to the podcast, especially the simple passive cash flow. Um, <laughs> keep keep uh, absorbing the audiobooks too, even when um, when life or work or whatever it is, it gets stressful. Um, I feel like if you hear those those audiobook recommendations too, write them down, listen to them, turn off the radio or, and try to minimize the TV if you can and um, put more of those those ideas into uh, into your daily routine to help you get closer to that goal. I think that that's one of the, the key aspects of that science of achievement. 
Right, anything we missed and any contact information for people to get a hold of you? Well, yeah, the easiest way to get a hold of me uh, just on, on Facebook. So just my name, uh, Sepper Bakam. My website, uh, we haven't launched it yet. And we also have a, a Facebook page called Real Estate Investing Quotes. And I get to share a lot of Lane's uh, great quotes and, and the quotes from his other uh, uh, guests as well. So kind of a daily dose of motivation. I'll email you my quote list. And um, you also have a, a meetup where you play cash flow, right? What's, how do you, how can people find that one? Oh, yeah. Uh, that's over in uh, uh, down here in Southern California. So it's it's uh, two meetups, actually, the Mission Viejo Cash Flow Club and the Newport Beach uh, Cash Flow Club. So it's uh, free to attend. And uh, we'd love to have any of the local uh, Simple Passive Cash Flow listeners attend. Well, thanks, Seth. I appreciate it. That's my pleasure, Lane. Right. Thank you. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.